All right, everybody, welcome back to the Recovery Lab podcast. This is podcast number two. We are happy to have Angela Mallet with us today to go over a few things. She's got a good story, has some hope, has some help, and I think that it will be good for everybody to listen and benefit from what all she has to say. Uh, again, I uh, beg all my listeners to comment a lot. I really do want the constructive criticism. If you have some suggested topics, anything is welcome. If you have people you want to nominate to be on the podcast, certainly do it. Uh, again, my shameless plug for financial assistance. I haven't gotten everything set up yet, so if you feel like donating, you can just send it to my cash app at cash sign Daniel Hassan. So uh, that's much less shameless promoting and begging than last time. So let's get right into it. Uh, Y'all, I am happy to have Angela with us today. So Angela, welcome. Hello, Drew. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. How are you? You know, I'm doing well. I've had a lovely morning today. Uh, It's Sunday. My daughter and I got up this morning. We went to mass and then we had brunch. So it's just been... And it's been an easy day. Now I'm going to chop it up with you for a little while. There we go. All right. I didn't know you were Catholic. If we had, uh, if we do a religious podcast series, maybe we can talk about that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, for all of y'all that are listening, Angela and I kind of briefly discussed how we would do this today because I know she has a lot of good information for you. But uh, in keeping with the general philosophy of what I think will be the most helpful to the most people, uh, I would ask... Uh, since Angela's my second guest, she'll be the second one. I, well, the third guest, second podcast. She'll be the third person I asked to give us a little bit of your background. How did you, how did you get to uh, have an addiction? What do you think the beginnings of it were? Uh, in an effort to offer up some relatability, so that people can see, oh, I'm messed up in equally the same fashion, or I have the same, uh, have a lot of the same history. And then they can benefit from how you have uh, changed your life, gotten sober, and the work you do to promote uh, advocacy and, and sobriety. So without further ado, how did your addiction start? Oh, goodness. Now, isn't that a loaded question if I've ever heard one? <laughs> I know, Ryan. Uh, I know. So it's, let's see. I, uh, so I'm born raised here in Mississippi. I grew up on the Mississippi Gulf Coast in a sleepy little coastal town. Um, hang on, can you hear that, Drew? No, I could not. <laughs> okay. My daughter's cat is out there going, meow, meow. She just wants to come in here. Well, look, I have um, a two-year-old that's probably going to be banging on that door here in a little while, so I feel you. Okay. It's all okay. fine. I'm sorry for that interruption, uh, but I can clearly hear her, and I just didn't want any listeners to be like, is she torturing her pet over there? I'm just going to open the door and let her in. Um, so anyway, I, I grew up on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and you know, I had a, a really large family, lots of cousins and aunts and uncles, and, and you know, for kind of from the outside looking in, things, it, it looked like I had a a pretty normal childhood. Um, but now having 
having been in recovery some time and, and done a lot of work on processing childhood stuff, you know, I, I see patterns in my life that started when I was really young. Um, I think I began struggling with body image issues and insecurities around that at an early age, probably about six years old. Um, and my parents also went through a really nasty divorce and me being the oldest child, uh, found myself a lot of times in the role of mediator between them. And um, I, I know that I developed this performance-based self-worth at a young age. So you know, while my mom was going through hell with divorce and dealing with all of that with my dad, I, I knew that I could make my mom happy by doing really well in school. And so, you know, I was, I've always been academically inclined, you know, pretty, pretty smart, uh, really took well to, to school and academics. So I knew that I could make my mom happy by making like straight eights or winning the science fair project or being, you know, getting so all-star student in my class. And so I developed this, uh, performance-based mentality and that just kind of stayed with me through all through my younger years and my teenage years and yeah and it kind of served me pretty well because I ended up you know, graduating at the top of my class getting a scholar an engineering scholarship to go to Ole Miss oh wow um but I I also you know recognized that my high school years there while I was doing really really well in school I was always involved with student activities. I was class president all through high school. Um, on the outside looking in, it's like, oh, hey, this girl's got it together. She's going somewhere. But on the weekend, I was partying with my friends. You know, and I, I know now that, like, I needed alcohol to feel normal in social settings. I, f I needed, you know, alcohol to make me feel um acceptable in social settings and like kind of quiet all these insecurities I had about myself and my self-worth but you know never really had any problems with that uh, did well academically went on to Ole Miss was in engineering school so I didn't really have a lot of time to do the wild college partying uh, there were a few a few fun grove stories in there but you know nothing too outlandish while I was in Oxford and then I graduated from engineering school in 2004 and moved back here to the Gulf Coast. Um, and then I went to work for an engineering firm here in Jackson County in 2004. And then 2005, we had this little storm come through called Hurricane Katrina. Yeah. And Hurricane Katrina, you know, just, just it was like a bomb going off for everyone down here and it just devastated life as we knew it. Um, but I was very fortunate that I was in the profession that I was in because it was engineers who had to rebuild everything after Hurricane Katrina. And so I spent the next five years of my life, you know, working on all kinds of hurricane reconstruction projects. Um, my major or my focus in engineering was in highway and bridge design. So I got to be a part of lots of 
rebuilding well-known landmarks along the Gulf Coast after Hurricane Katrina. And, you know, I was young and single and in my 20s and um, had a good job and made good money. And, and I lived it up all along well, during my off time. Um, well, I've so, got to confess, I knew woefully little about your life. I mean, my only real exposure to, exposure to you uh, has been uh, the advocacy work you do. So uh -huh. I, I had no idea about the engineering background or the the practice in that. That's that's pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it makes me wonder. I mean, being a, such a linear thinker, I can see how uh, that kind of logic uh, based approach to life can be both a blessing and a curse. Uh, right. You know, if you need to justify something, surely you know somebody schooled in linear thinking is going to come up with a good way to justify it. <clears throat> well, I, I'm gonna I'll get into a little bit later how kind of my my engineering training and my engineering education plays a, a really significant role in in the work that I do today and the systems change that I hope we can see here in our state. Uh, before we get to that part, you know. It, the storm, while I had the tools and the training and the skills to, you know, help my community rebuild after this devastating storm blew through the Gulf Coast, uh, Drew, I did not have any of those things at, at my um, dis disposure when, when a personal storm was about to blow through my life. So I was 29 years old. This is a this is 2009, 2010-ish, um, and I got pregnant for the first time. And I thought, like, okay, here we go. You know, all the things that I've done up until this point, um, like, now's my chance to to have a family because that's really what I, I wanted. You know, going to college and getting a degree and getting a good job and making money and getting a home, all those things. It was like, I did all that. Because I wanted to have a family of my own one day. Um, but unfortunately, that first pregnancy ended early. And uh, there was a birth defect in the baby. And she was not carried to term. And so I woke up in the middle of the night one night. And I, I could tell something was wrong. And so I went took myself to the hospital. And... Um, and she didn't make it. Uh, there was no heartbeat. And mm. so they had to do a cesarean and remove her. And they gave me pain medicine afterwards. Yeah, you and get the so, pain medicine and this is the kind of traumatic life event that leads to self-medication. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so I, so here, here's a couple of facts. Number one, I had no understanding of grief and how to process that. Um, I didn't want to face the fact that all my hopes and dreams kind of just came crashing down. The relationship ended also. Uh, it was it was on its last leg anyway. Um, so that ended, lost the pregnancy, and you know, life just kind of like came up and slapped me in the face at 30 years old. So I turned 30 while I was pregnant. And I did not, I didn't have any skills to deal with that. Um, and I also had a lot of arrogance. Because I, I, I had nowhere 
in my mind said you should be concerned about substance use or you should be concerned about taking these pills. Sure. Because sure. I honestly, you know, I honestly believe that addiction didn't happen to college-educated, successful, ambitious people like me, right? And and boy, was I about to get a rude awakening because it sure as hell does, and it and it brought me to my knees. Um, so you know, I was given the pain medicine after the cesarean, and I went home, and you know, I have this like. A lot of that time is just like a real blur, Drew, but I do have this very distinct memory of coming home from the hospital and telling my mom, um, just get all this baby stuff out of my house. I don't want to talk about it. I want to go back to work. I'm going to pretend like this just didn't even happen. And that's what I did. Uh, a week later, I went back to work and I just tried to, you know, just buried myself in work and tried to act like none of it happened and I was able to do that because I had a bottle of Oxycontin to help me do it there you go um, you yeah. know, the physical pain went away in a few days um, but I kept taking those pills uh, to numb all the emotional pain that I didn't ha I didn't know how and didn't want to deal with um, so you know it wasn't real hard that prescription ran out ran out um, but I knew some guys that I had gone to high school with who I'd, you know, hear through the grapevine, oh, such and such has these pills or such and such does this. And so it wasn't hard to find an old high school friend who could just sell them to me. Sure. Um, Look, I've got some friends from the coast. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not hard down there for sure. No. Yeah, and so there I was. Uh, at 30, uh, I did a nosedive into a bottle of Oxycontin, and um, over the next four or five years of my life, yeah, it really consumed me. I uh, wasn't long. I hid it for a little while, um, but eventually I you know, lost my job for poor performance and not meeting deadlines and just inconsistencies, and then I lost my home, uh, blew through all the, all in the investments I had. Um, then began going in and out of jail, first for like misdemeanor stuff, like small like traffic violations, um, and then when I didn't have the funds to pay those fines, you know, with with our criminal justice system, if you've got the money to pay the fines, you're great. There, there's not a lot of consequences, but when you don't have the financial resources to pay to get out of our justice system, it becomes a, a real problem. And so I. Um, then began going out of in, in and out of jail first for misdemeanor stuff, then moved on to some felony charges. Um, and then I was finally arrested for grand larceny, and which is a felony charge, and was um, arrested and spent about six months in jail. And then I was court-ordered to go to treatment, and I came to Jackson, Mississippi, and went to treatment, you know, thankfully, because at that time, there's no more private insurance. There was no more, um, you know, funds available. And, like, my family, my, my parents had five kids in college. And I'm out here, like, running around crazy. And they just didn't know, they didn't know what to do. And they didn't, you know, they were, like, not able to pay for me to get out of trouble or pay for me to go to treatment. So, thankfully... There 
through the Mississippi Department of Mental Health, I was able to go to treatment in Jackson at a place called Friendship Connection on an indigent scholarship. And uh, so I went to treatment there, got out of treatment for a little while. I, I had like a, a brief introduction to, to sobriety, uh, but I really didn't think, yeah, I, I went to treatment, I was there for six months, and then I did sober living, and I went to work for an engineering firm up in Jackson, and I really honestly believed, Drew, that the answer to all of this, I wasn't really convinced that I was an addict or an alcoholic. I just thought, like, I need to get my shit back together. I need to go back to work. I need to start making money again, and everything will be fine, right? Right. And so I did. I did that, and things got fine pretty quickly again. You know, I had a great resume, so I got a a job with an engineering firm up in Jackson and did some um, fun projects up there. And so I was like, okay, see, I'm fine now. And I got really busy with work. Um, and then I started dating someone and fell in love and I'm like, see, everything's fine. I don't, now Drew, I don't have time to go to all those meetings and I really don't have time to hang out with this sponsor. You know, I've got a deadline here and I've got a date this night. And so I just kind of stopped doing those things. And then, you know, I go out, uh, I met Stella's father or I haven't introduced y'all to Stella yet. I'm getting ahead of myself in the story. Um, I, Jack and I would go out on dates and I'd have a glass of wine and, you know, like the walls didn't burn down. And yeah. You got to dip your toe in the water for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't end up in jail. And I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm not, I'm not injecting Oxycontin or heroin. So we're fine. Right. This right. It's just wine and it's harmless. Um, but what I didn't realize is that it, it began kind of this domino effect of, of things that would happen later. So, uh, anyway, I, I met Jack and I'm happy to say that in 2015, my, uh, God finally gave me that little baby girl that I'd always wanted. And my daughter Stella was born, uh, which was the greatest gift of my life. Um, but because, you know, I had convinced myself that I was fine and I didn't need to do all this recovery stuff. You know, uh, I did not tell my doctor that I had once had a problem with prescription opioids. And so after my daughter was born, you know, I had a, a C-section. And, of course, they gave me a pain prescription, which is normal, which is needed and should have been fine. Um, but I, I did not disclose that I had once had a problem with opioid dependence. So I've got this prescription of pills. But I'm breastfeeding, and I'm like, oh, I probably shouldn't take these because I'm breastfeeding. But I didn't throw them away either. I just kind of like stuck right, them. Right, you might need them at some point. Let's not be. Yeah, just, yeah. just stuck them in the bathroom. And uh, so fast forward, my daughter's about six months old, and uh, I lay her down in the nursery one day for a nap. And I go into the kitchen, and I'm like washing dishes, and... All of a sudden, I'm just standing there, and so this is a really pivotal moment in my story because uh, looking back, you know, I know what I know now about trauma and the role that that plays 
with our substance use. Um, now, some people call it the disease. You know, if you go to lots of 12-step meetings, you'll hear people talking about, oh, your disease is always out there in the parking lot doing push-ups. Right. Um, if, you're in, uh, if you're in faith-based recovery, they'll call it the devil or a demon. The enemy, um, yeah, coming to get the you. The enemy, yeah. If you are a more, if you, you know, if you align with more of a clinical approach, you know, you could say that this is your disease, um, or you know, really yeah. what I believe it is, is unresolved trauma manifesting itself at really inopportune times. And so here I am standing in the kitchen with my six-month-old greatest gift of my life in a beautiful home and a happy relationship. Um, everything I had wanted, here I am in, in the midst of all of it. Isn't it fascinating just how willing we are to jeopardize what we want most? Yeah. It, it's, it, it's astonishing, really. And so what it is, though, it is this unresolved trauma, unresolved pain, unresolved hurts that we hit, that we had away inside of ourselves and we don't ever want to talk about again. And the fact is you have to talk about that stuff. You have to heal from it or it will come back at really, really inconvenient times. And that's what it did to me on a Tuesday, standing in my kitchen and, you know, with my baby asleep in the nursery. And I'm standing there and all of a sudden I remembered those pills in the bathroom. And I was like, I did not even consider not taking them. Of course it was not. almost like a gift. It was like, oh, there's the pills in there. Let me go grab them. I was thinking about weaning her anyway. Yeah, this just works out great. <laughs> so so I did. I went and got, got some medication, and I took them, and probably uh, for five days, I was I was uh, using IV substances again. There we go. It doesn't take long. Yeah, it didn't take long. So um, it, was, it was ugly that time. So it was about... Four or five months, I hit it, and then people around me are like, what the hell is going on with you? Um, and then about six months later, it all came to an ugly head one day, and I was arrested in Jackson. I just went and bought 10 Dilaudid, and um, the drugs were found, and and my daughter was with me in her car seat. Mm. And the Flowood Police Department took me to jail, and they had her and I just begged him I'm like please let me call her dad this is not his fault he he is not an addict I am you know Jack is her, Stella's father is an amazing man um, he's not an alcoholic or an addict but he was always supportive of me in my recovery um, so thankfully they let me call Jack and he came and got Stella and I went to jail and I went to Rankin County um, um, but the judge agreed to let me go back to treatment. I begged him <laughs> when I went, you know, for arraignment and they were setting bond. I was like, please do not, don't give me a bond. I do not need to bond out of here. I need to go to treatment. I cannot stop on my own, but I want to. And if you let me out of here, I'm afraid that I won't. So please, can I just stay here until I can get back in treatment? And the judge said, yes. And so I stayed um, in Rankin County Jail until a bed was available at Friendship Connection, and I went back there. And I've been sober since, and that was 
almost seven years ago. All right, fantastic. So that's my story. Um, on the on the back side of that, you know, I I remember the, my first you know brief stint in recovery. Hearing I'd go to these meetings. Um, there's a meeting in South Jackson called Positive Flow, and every Friday night they have speakers. And in treatment, both times that I was there, uh, they would take us every Friday night to Positive Flow, and you, I would hear these speakers come and tell their sobriety story. And I noticed this thing, Drew. Like, I noticed that, I mean, I didn't know what the hell else. I didn't know anything about psychology or anything about recovery, but I just kept noticing, like, common theme that people would tell their stories about what happened, how crazy it got, and then sobriety, and then they got better. And like the key to them getting better was talking about and dealing with some of this stuff that happened in their childhood. Well, I would, I noticed that trend, but I wouldn't do it. Um, so when I went back that last, when I went back to treatment the last time, you know, I was desperate for change like all I knew I didn't give a shit about making money again I didn't care about going to work I didn't care about all those material things that I cared about before when I walked back in those doors to treatment the last time the only thing I cared about was that I had this precious baby that I had prayed for my entire life and I desperately wanted to be her mom and I needed somebody to teach me how to do that yeah the so desperation in, finally set in yeah, so when I walked in the doors of treatment, it was all fair game. I'm like, y'all want to talk about childhood? Let's dig it in. Y'all want to talk about pains and all that stuff? I, I'm, I'm yours. And I did, and so I spent a lot of time talking about that stuff and just really trying to understand this, these core beliefs that were kind of set in my childhood. Some of them, you know, because of my parents' relationship, but some of that stuff was just because of these insecurities that I had about myself. Sure. And I had to reckon with all of that. Um, and so really digging in and being honest about that stuff and finding people I can be honest about, honest with about it really has been like the cornerstone of my recovery. And it's helped me, helped me ever since. Well, what, speaking of helping you ever since, what are some of the things that you do oh, that, that help you renew that scent, that drive, uh, to, to stay sober. I, let's see. So I'm this, let's see. I, in January, I will have seven years of sobriety and it's still, um, the things that kind of renew it for me is service to others. I try to stay really connected with, um, people, in recovery and I, I am always trying to find like how can I help you in your whatever your you want your walk in recovery to look like um, whether that's mentoring or doing peer support with people or educating them on wherever they are in their path um, that stuff keeps me very motivated and renewed and you know it's I just feel like I actually I don't I don't I did not go back to work in engineering. Um, God has brought me on this crazy path of of being able to work in recovery advocacy, um, 
and that well, it may not pay as well, but it certainly is more rewarding, I would imagine. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, I have often on the head. I have often been of the mind that people that, and maybe this is my own ego, that people that screw up their professional lives the most or personal lives the most can be of the most benefit to the next man or woman. And it certainly seems like you have, like you have found that to be true, whether or not you have, you know, personally thought it in those terms because of what you do all day, every day. So I think everybody could benefit from hearing some of the advocacy work that you're engaged in. Yeah, so I um, I kind of stumbled into it. Um, I was about, so, so let me let me paint the picture for you. Uh, I go back to treatment and the last time. Uh, I went to Friendship Connection again, was there for 90 days. Is Friendship out. Connection still open? Yes, it is. It is still open. Why don't and you give a, pl- a, a little quick plug to the, fr- I mean, you have already, but where it is, yeah. how they might, how somebody might be able to get in touch with them, if you know. So Friendship Connection is uh, called the Center for Independent Learning, Friendship Connection. It is on Raymond Road in South Jackson. It is an all-women's treatment facility. They specialize in post-incarceration treatment and opioid use disorder. Um, they Their phone number is 601-373-1533. They are a Department of Mental Health certified provider, so that means there are grant funding, grant funds available for those who qualify for them. Uh, it is run by an incredible lady named Dr. B. Cannon and Marianne Green, and uh, yeah, that's them. So if if you need, you know, if you have a female that needs to get into treatment, give them a call. Highly Perfect. recommend. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, so. I, um, I get out of treatment. I'm sentenced to drug court because now when I'm arrested after I relapse, that totally violated, uh, the pretrial diversion program I had <laughs> placed on for that grand larceny charge. Right. And so now I had to go back for resentencing and thankfully the judge sentenced me to drug court and allowed me to do it in Madison County. So I'm on drug court. I get out of treatment, and you know my daughter is home with me, and I'm just you know, doing the stay-at-home mom thing, going to meetings, going to drug courts, taking it very slow, and just like one, literally one hour at a time. Um, and so one day, I was about seven months sober, I think, and I saw on Facebook that they were going to have Recovery Day at the Capitol, and I'm like, what? What's that? I want to go to that. <laughs> and, uh, so I put Stella in her stroller. It was in January. It was freezing ass cold. And we bebopped on down to the Capitol. And I did not know anybody that was going to be there, but it just intrigued me. So I've always been super interested in policy and um, and just just little, you know, uh, arrogant enough to think like, oh, they're letting, let, they're letting a bunch of felons come to the Capitol. I've got to go be part of this. There we go. And <laughs> so I went and I met some incredible people that day. But one of the coolest things that happened is that the Senate Drug Policy Committee was having a hearing that day to talk about the opioid crisis. <coughs> so I, knew, I knew someone on that committee and saw them out in the hallway and they were like hey girl what are you doing here we've gone to Ole Miss together and interned in the chancellor's office and so I was like 
they were like, oh, are you still building bridges down on the coast? And I said, well, no. Well, see what happened we, was. Yeah. What happened was, I was like, so I'm here for Recovery Day at the Capitol. And they were like, that is fascinating. Will you come in here and tell the committee your story? And so I did. I had never done anything like, I mean, I'm like seven months sober, right? So I go in there and I could see on their faces this confusion because they're talking about the opioid crisis and this, you know, this starting rise in overdose deaths. Um, and I could tell they had this picture in their mind of like a heroin addict and a junkie and what that looked like. But they're sitting there and they're looking at me and I'm in a suit. My hair's fixed and I've got this precious little kid with me. And, and they're really and having they're, to confront some of their biases. Yeah. I mean, here, right. here it and is. like, the evidence writ there, large that, you know, addiction is an overspecter of education or race or income. Yeah. Exactly. And so that just, it's like, I think that, I know that day just kind of sparked in me. Like, okay, so, so there's some understanding that needs to happen with the leaders that are, that have control over the policies that affect people like me. And, and maybe I can play a role in that somehow i don't know how but maybe i can uh so a few months later the city i mean the city the state of mississippi received the first round of federal funding for opioid funding and uh the first opioid grant that came to mississippi was like seven million dollars and then you know now we're on our third round of funding um and as part of that do they they did the the Department of Mental Health did this massive, like, increase in funding to treatment centers to pay to help people who were struggling with opioid addiction get into treatment, um, and also do the lockdown distribution around the state. And they wanted to hire someone to do outreach. Well, and can you tell? Can you tell every? Because I know my mom is listening to this. Can you tell? Say what in the lock zone is? Yes, in the lock zone is. Uh, also called Narcan, and it is the overdose reversal medication. So when someone is experiencing an overdose uh, from whether it's heroin, fentanyl, or Oxycontin, um, there is a medication that you can either spray in the nose or inject into the body that will revive someone from overdosing. What it does is it goes and flushes the opioids off their brain and can literally bring them back to life. I made a plug for this last week with uh, Johnny Jarfitz and Lou Duncan about how I believe the Pines is giving it away, no questions yeah. asked. All you got to do is go in there. And uh, if Mr. Moore in Hattiesburg at the bicycle shop doesn't have any, I promise you he, he would help you get some. So That's right. let's try not and to so, die out there until we can figure out how to stay sober. Yeah. And me, and I, I keep it stocked here at my office down here on the coast. You can get it from me. Um, there's a lady in the Jackson area named Christy Barong who runs a street outreach called the Molly Angel Project. You can look her up on Facebook. She, We keep her, make sure she always has a, a um, supply of naloxone. There's people all over the state. Kim Benefield up in Tupelo, if you're in that area and you need it. Look up Kim Benefield. If you're in um, the Vicksburg area, you can call Warren Yazoo. Like there's, there's a, uh, we have built 
a whole network of people all over Mississippi. And through the funding at Department of Mental Health, we have them all stocked with naloxone. So no matter where you are, you know, holler at me, tell me what city you're in, and I'll tell you where to go get it for free, no questions asked. What a fantastic resource. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay, I'm sorry to have interrupted you. Back back to... So anyway, I, I got this opportunity to go to work under the first opioid grant and work with the governor's opioid and heroin task force, and we began doing outreach all over the state. And part of my role was to create this Narcan distribution program. So I started it back in 2017, and we first gave it out to uh, first responders, to police and fire. Um, but then after I, I trained, it took a while, but I, I got to train uh, all 6,000 law enforcement officers in our state on how to use Narcan and how to revive somebody that's experiencing an overdose. And then we were like, okay, so now we got to get it into the hands of the community. Um, so I was able to do that. Uh, and then, you know, advocacy just kind of like I, the bug bit me, Drew. And I was like, this is what I'm going to do. Like, I want to help people who have been through this crap. I want to help people who have experienced the things that I've experienced. And, and I think this desire came from from gratitude because it was it was a bunch of addicts and alcoholics and former prostitutes and former crack addicts who picked me up from this broken shell of a human being and loved me back to life you found something in yourself that you valued and wanted to give it to, to the next person yeah. 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 And, but I also, it was just this deep sense of gratitude for people who had given it to me. And, you know, it was, it was a, a former prostitute who, who taught me how to have self-worth. It was a former, you know, heroin addict who, who gave me some of the best advice of how to be a good mom again. And I, like, it was my first sponsor, you know, she was uh, addicted to cocaine. And, like, she's the one who, who taught me how to invest my money. Right? So it's like, I don't, I, I see all of these people who have experienced pain in their life and experienced addiction. But they're just some of the best people you'll ever meet. And, like, once I saw that, I was like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life working on making change for systems that affect you know listen, like from listening to you talk I, I don't I don't know last week I, I brought up how I've got this on ramp off-ramp analogy about if I had only done this then I could have avoided some things and I can see from your story where the con the converse is also true here you are at seven months sober and just kind of land into something that sparks this real passion in you. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sitting here thinking, I can learn from that. Because if I will just involve myself in the recovery community, however little or however lot, I can, you never know when that thing is going to take hold. You never know when you're going to hear that good piece of advice. You never know when you're going to make a difference. And, you know, sooner is better than later. And, that's, I mean, imagine... You know, here you are at seven months, and there's somebody out there right now listening to this that's seven months sober, and they don't know anything about their life or how they're going to 
all, you know, they can't even see from the fog of whatever recent uh, consequence led them to get sober for seven months. And here it is. Here's the recipe right there in front of you. Get involved. Get yeah, involved. I just saw I just saw it on Facebook, like Recovery Dance Capital, and I was like, oh, I'm going to this. I, I don't know why I wanted to go, but I was just like, I'm going. And then my internal critic was like, you can't go to that. You don't know anybody there. You don't even know anybody's name. What are you just going to walk up and be like, I'm Angela. I'm an well, addict. That is exactly, <laughs> and exactly I mean. exactly what I did. I So I thankfully did not listen to the critics. Who do you think anyway. you are? You don't think. I mean, yes. they don't want to hear from you. Um, yeah, I get it. So, I totally get that. So I went, Drew, and, uh, and now here we are five years later, six years later. And, you know, I get to do this stuff every day, and it's such a gift. Um, and I do it because, here's here's the truth. I'm going to bring this back to the engineering, because I, I told you earlier that it still plays a significant role in what I do today. So when I was in college, first year of college, first year of engineering school, you have to take this class called engineering analysis. And in that class, they teach you what is called the engineering method. And it is basically a really, really complex, in-depth mathematical breakdown of problem solving. And they teach you any kind of issue you are trying to engineer and resolve, there are steps you take to dissect that system and identify the problem and resolve the problem and then reassemble the system. I knew, I knew that logic was going to serve it. It was going to serve you at some point. It, it probably hindered you in the beginning, and it's helped you now. Yeah. Yes. So that is true. This this engineering method, or some people call it the scientific method, that is true. If you were trying to reconstruct a high-rise bridge that Hurricane Katrina tore down, that is true. If you were trying to build a brand new subdivision on a piece of land that you that you want to develop. It is true if you want to build a water and sewer system for the city of Jackson. It is also true if you look at our systems that serve and respond to people who are struggling with substance use. So through my journey through the the prison system, well, let's say jail system. I didn't know. I never went into MDOC custody through the, the carceral system, through our justice system, through our treatment system, I saw things that really disturbed me. I saw people treated uh, with absolute zero dignity. I saw, uh, and that's you know, in our justice system or in our carceral system, I saw um, inequality. I saw inequality based on um, socioeconomic status, based on race. You know, I, w- I remember sitting in group at Friendship Connection, and I was probably about a couple years into sobriety, and I still went there for aftercare. And these women who I've gotten sober with over the past couple of years, like, I love them deeply. And some of their stories are exactly the same as mine, right? Exactly. And... But they, instead of being given opportunities to like do go to treatment and get on drug court, like they're giving given sentences like 15 years. Why is that? 
Is that because I have an education and they don't? Uh, is it because it can't be because I had more money than them? I didn't have a dime to my name, so it's not a money thing. Um, is it a race thing? I don't know what it is, but I know it's not fair, and it really disturbed me. And I, I could not just ignore that. I couldn't go back. I can't even today. I can't just go on with my life and act like this. I, I don't know that that happened. All right. So I'm going to leave the justice system alone for a minute, and let's just talk about the treatment system. Uh, in the United States, if you look at the entire pot of money that goes to drug intervention doll, in, drug intervention in some way, so I'm talking about like everything from courts to uh, diversion to enforcement to treatment. In our in the United States today, 90% of that money goes to enforcement, and only 10% of it goes to prevention and treatment. So I see people like Keenan Wald, who's going to be your next guest, and people like Ann, Ann Fisher that's at Harbor House and Dr. Buchanan at Friendship Connection and people down here on the coast that run the treatment centers down here. I see them, these people who work their tail off day in and day out to try to help the people struggling with addiction, and they it is impossible for them to do it at the capacity that we need it. Like if you if you try to get somebody into treatment right now, Mississippi, uh, there's always about a four to six week waiting period. And why is that? It's because these systems are so poorly funded that and there's such high demand. Like we're putting all our eggs over here in this enforcement and prosecution basket. If we would put them over here in prevention and treatment, we would probably get some better outcomes. But we don't. And so I see these systems, all of them needing change, all of them serving hurting people. And I'm like, you can't, you can't just not address this. There has to be some real solutions. And if we break down these systems and identify the problems and properly resource them, we can get the changes that we want to see. So that's how my engineering brain looks at all of this and says, okay, like, how do I build the bridges in these systems today? And, and that's what I'm doing, Drew. Amen. I may be crazy. I may be a one-man show, but I'm going to try to do it anyway. Well, speaking of you being a one-man show, how could somebody out there, if they were so inclined, uh, reach out to you or, uh, you know, fight the good fight with you? How, what, what are some yeah. ways people can get involved? What are some ways people can make a difference should they not know off the top of their head. So there, I'm gonna give you two ways uh, for you to plug in. There, there's End It For Good, who I work for full time. End It For Good is a Mississippi-based nonprofit that was founded by a lady named Christina Dent. And uh, we travel all over the state and we host community discussions to talk about everything that I've just shared with you. What are these systems? How are they not working? And what are the policies that we can change to make them better? So that's one way you can follow End It For Good on social media. We're on TikTok, Facebook, all the things. And come to one of our events. Um, and then, you know, connect with us. Find, find ways maybe you can, we can host an event in your town if you want. Uh, the second way is through the Mississippi Recovery Advocacy Project. Uh, you can join our group on Facebook or shoot me a message, shoot me an email. 
and I'll get you connected to me twice a month. And it's a group of recovery advocates from all the corners of the state. And we work on advocacy, like whatever the thing is that you want to impact in your community, we'll help you figure out how to do it. So maybe that's how do you get Narcan and keep it somewhere in your community? Or maybe how do you start a harm reduction meeting in your community? Um, or how do you go lobby at the state capitol to try to get fentanyl testing strips passed so we can start handing those out around the state? Um, there's all kinds of things, and we want to empower people in recovery to make the change that they want to see. So, end it for good, Mississippi Recovery Advocacy Project. Hit us up. There you go. Right there. Oh, and hey, before we jump off, I wanted to tell you, I just love this little idea that you have about nominating the next guest. I think you should keep doing that uh, just to kind of like keep the, the tag you're at um, of having guests on your show. Look, and, I, I want yeah. all the suggestions I can get. Thank you for, for saying that. Uh, I've written so to like judges and I've written to... I mean, I happen to know Keenan, so I was able to just call up there, and he's been, you know, very grateful and or grateful. I'm grateful that he agreed to be on there. The same with you. So yeah, uh, whoever's listening, please offer up some people. We want to spread the no, word I... and do what we can to promote recovery because it's something worth fighting for and having. Well, I would like to nominate. I think you should have each guest that comes on. They got to nominate the next person. Oh, there we go. So... That is a great idea. So I'm going to nominate Thomas Byers. Thomas Byers. Yeah, I'll shoot you his contact information. Please do. Look, that's high pressure on Thomas. You better come through for me, man. <laughs> he will. He's super funny. Y'all will have a great time. Good deal. Angela, look, thank you so much. And on behalf of everybody that's out there, thank you on my behalf. Thank you for taking the time this Sunday afternoon. Uh, really, uh, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thanks for having me, Drew. I hope you have a good week. You too. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.